coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap. We go deep into sophisticated modular malware, meet the IoT vendor who vows to recall devices used in recent attacks, answer your home server questions, and have a little fun in the roundup. All that and much, much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. everyone, and welcome to TechSnap. This is episode 291 of Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems network and administration podcast. We stream this episode live on Thursday, October 27th, 2016. This episode is brought to you by our three fine sponsors, DigitalOcean, Ting, and IX Systems. I'll tell you more about those great sponsors as this here show goes on. What? what? All of our downloads? This live stream? Why, yes, I'm glad you asked. It's powered by Scale Engine over at scaleengine.com. You should go check them out. My name is Chris, and joining us every single week is our host, the admin, the tech, and the teacher, Mr. Alan Jude. Hello, Alan. Hello, Chris, everybody. Thanks I, for watching. I love the Meet BSD shirt. You know, I always got to comment on the shirt, and I, that's a good one. Is that from last year? Yeah, this is uh, the 2014. Very, very nice. You know, Jupiter Broadcast is now officially a sponsor of Meet BSD. Isn't that, yeah, isn't that cool? So I'm looking forward to that. But that's not what we're here to talk about today. There is many things to cover. Um, And last week, we were mentioning ESET a bit. We were talking about their security products. And this week, we're going to look at some of the analysis they've been doing on some very interesting malware. Are you ready to kick it off, sir? Yep. All right, let's do it. Lifting the lid on SendInt, or SedInt? SedNit. SedNit. Tell me all about SedNit. Yes, so uh, security experts at ESET, the antivirus company, have released uh, the final two parts of their research into the operations of the notorious Sednit hacking group. The Sednit gang, also known as APT28, Fancy Bear, Pondstorm, or Sophacy, so you might have heard all these different names depending which group was investigating them, yeah. are, are highly experienced and have been engaged in criminal activities since at least 2004. Uh, they have developed sophisticated attacks by bypassing the typical network security at compromised organizations. In part two and three of their research, entitled En Route with Sednit, Observing the Comings and Goings, uh, and En Route with Sednit, the Mysterious Downloader, uh, respectively, ESET's uh, threat analysis have taken a closer look at the software used by Sednit to spy on its targets and uh, how they steal credential information. Mm. Uh, Sednit's espionage toolkit is only deployed on targets deemed interesting to the hacking group after a period of reconnaissance. So they look at uh, a lot of different places, and then they pick individual ones that they actually want to uh, drill into, and only against those do they use their most sophisticated tools, because every time they use the tool, there's a chance that uh, researchers will get a hold of it, and and eventually there will be countermeasures to it. and So, so on. this would seem to indicate they're pretty selective. Yeah, so they're selective about where they use their best tools to avoid those tools being uh, compromised and eventually not being as useful. Reminds me of something we covered about the NSA ones. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, yes, in this case, they have uh, lots of funny names and so on, just like it was the NSA. Uh, so the toolkit has three main components made up of two spying backdoors, the first called SEDRECO, as in uh, SEDNIT Reconnaissance, and then the second one called XAGENT, and then a network tool called XTUNNEL. Uh, deploying both spying backdoors at the same time allows them to remain in contact if one of them becomes detected. That way, if, if one of them gets shut down, they have the other one in order to open up a new secondary one and you know often a, a process we used to see virus is uh do was start two processes so that and uh, if one got killed the other one would respawn it again so that the virus scanner could never kill it off properly it would kill Ooh, both processes and it had solved the problem but when it kills the first one the second one would restart the first one and then when the second one got killed the first one would then restart the second one yeah i've seen that 
Uh, once in place, the uh, Sedreco Backdoor Trojan provides remote operators with a variety of functions, including the ability to read and write files, turn on key logging uh, to furtively steal users' uh, key presses, like their passwords and so on, or scour the victim's hard drive uh, and all their mapped network resources and get huh. access to the whole network. Uh, ESET's researchers um, has discovered that the Sedreco contains the capability to run external plugins downloaded and executed as required by the command and control server under the hacker's control. So add functionality so, later, essentially. Yeah. So basically, they, they have a standard reconnaissance tool, they put it on, and then they can dynamically load additional capabilities so that they don't have the full capabilities on every uh, victim, so that if the tool does get compromised, only the, the bits they were using are compromised, and the rest right. of their toolbox is still use, uh, usable later. Plus, you can ship it today with one feature set, and then later on, when you figure out how to get something else working, add it as a module. Yeah, especially if you're, uh, I don't know if they were in this case, but if you're doing, um, like, stealing a code signing certificate or something, it makes it more difficult to, to modify your application. And so having it be able to just load dynamic modules solves the problem. Absolutely. Clever. Uh, a Sedreco plugin uh, identified by the researchers was found to share code with the module used by XAgent, the other backdoor uh, utilized by the Sednet group. Uh, XAgent can exfiltrate information from compromised computers via HTTP and email, uh, working alongside with components in a toolkit called USB Stealer, which attempts to steal data from air-gapped computers. HTTP and email, does that mean like a phishing scam? Uh, well, no, this is for exfiltrating. So they're uh, when they find the files on your computer that they want, they can use HTTP post oh. or email them to themselves. <laughs> that as an email attachment? Oh, that's, yeah. well, that's great. <laughs> that's... Man, and plus, then, you, plus, then they would have to be using an email address on a server that you can't track down. Because if if you ever could see that, that would right. Well, uh, uh, most likely, what it does is sends to one email address, which is then auto forwarding to another one and another one, and they just change them periodically. And yeah, but yeah, the the USB stealer thing is interesting because basically they will infect USB sticks uh, that are used in these compromised computers, hoping that that USB stick will then travel to the air gap computer, allowing them to infect it and transmit data back and forth over the right. air gap right. with a sneaker net and, and eventually yeah. uh, be able to steal the data from them. the protected yeah. And when is it not great to infect USB sticks? Like that's always, air gap machine or not, that's always a good, uh, <laughs> you know, little uh, extra step to have taken care of because <laughs> you never know what that thing's going to get plugged into. Maybe it'll get plugged into the CEO's laptop one day or something. What's Jeez. really interesting is during their investigation, ESET researchers were able to retrieve the complete ex-agent source code. And turns out it was intended to work under Linux. Oh, Really? So, so these aren't all just Windows viruses. Yeah, and it makes me think less of about getting data off of a desktop and maybe more like getting data off of a file server, server or... and things like that, yeah, or email server. servers, yep. Yep. Or, yep. or other machines, huh. or maybe air gap machines, and so on. <clears throat> Although versions of XAgent have been seen for Windows, Linux, and iOS, ESET's team of researchers believe that it would be surprising if they have not uh, been a version for Android as well. Oh, sure. Yeah, okay. Uh, because they've seen Windows, Linux, and iOS, they're like, assuming that there isn't one for Android would be silly. Yeah. Uh, the well-designed XAgent malware is compri uh, comprised of a series of modules providing varying functionality, and the samples examined by ESET researchers indicate that the Sednet hacking group adapts each attack for the specific target. Uh, you know, they're going after one, uh, only a couple individual people at a time, and so they modify their software to be 
best suited for that particular target. So they're taking the time to be selective about who they target, and then once they target that person... design module specifically to, to compromise that person. That's brilliant, right? So you have the base malware that is your standard platform, and then when you have a specific target, you just create a module for that target, which is really clever. It's, this is well-done stuff. Yes, this also, of course, avoids the risk of exposing all the X agents' code to security researchers. Right. Like I was saying, yeah, because they only use the modules that make sense against each target, if that target eventually figures out what's going on and gets a sample to the researchers, the researchers only have the custom-built bit, custom bits that were for that particular target. Yeah, and without all the modules, you don't even have a complete picture. So you might know what they intended for this platform to do in this particular attack, but you're not really getting a full picture of what it's capable of. It was pretty, yep. pretty good. Pretty good. Pretty uh, and then they pretty have good. X-Tunnel, which is the network proxy tool used by the Sednet group to relay network traffic All between right. its fan and control server on the internet and the infected computers on their local network. Basically, allows you to have one machine that maybe does have internet access um, proxy commands from your control, fan and control server to machines that don't have internet access that are maybe restricted only to the local LAN and so on. Right. Uh, or just, you know, where you normally can't connect from the internet to the machine behind the firewall, if you infect one machine and it connects out to your command and control server and makes this reverse tunnel, then you have a way to get to those machines from the outside. Uh, the researchers say that the uh, significant resources have been put in development of X-Tunnel, Cedrico, and X-Agent, as they describe in their uh, route Observing the Comings and Goings uh, article. <clears throat> in order to perform its espionage activities, the Sednet group mainly relies on two backdoors, X-Agent and Cedrico, uh, which are intensely developed over the past so many years. Uh, similarly, notable effort has been invested into X-Tunnel in order to pivot it in a stealthy way. Every time you know a, a method becomes common or known, they make it work a different way. Uh, overall, these three uh, applications should be the primary focus of anyone wanting to understand and detect the group's activities. Hmm. Uh, the final focus of the researchers' deep dive into the Sednet group was a special downloader code uh, called DownDelf. Uh, <laughs> Sounds adorable. Which gets its name from being written in the Delphi programming language. Mm, okay. Uh, is used in hacks orchestrated by the Sednet group to deploy previously mentioned X agent in Cedrico and so on. Mm. So this is a downloader that they actually infect somebody with, like say via phishing or malware or whatever, mm. um, in order to then download these uh, reconnaissance tools and in, install you know X agent and Cedrico on the infected computers. Once in place, uh, DownDelf downloads a configuration file from the internet and fetches the configured payloads from a series of command and control servers. Uh, it uses a rootkit bootkit technology to hide the activities of the Sednet group and the small number of deployments uh, suggests one thing. This group of attackers wants to do everything they could to avoid being noticed. Which so they're is, hiding their stuff with rootkits so that even if you're running tools on the operating system, you don't see the malware because it's being hidden by the kernel. Which could be they're being directed by people who don't want to be identified or financed yeah, so or... In particular, these guys definitely uh, are interested in uh, persistence, right? That's why it's, it, this is the real meaning of advanced persistent threat is that they're trying to be stealthy. Yeah. They don't want to get caught. They want to keep access to your network for years without you noticing. So and they while they want to steal your stuff, they want to do it slowly and, and not let you notice. And they want to do it in a way that gives them new features and capabilities later on after they've gotten in the door. And they also want to do it in yeah. a way that doesn't expose them if, they, if they're discovered. Exactly. So even when they steal your stuff, uh, they're not likely to go using it or blabbing about it right away because they don't want you to figure out how they got it. 
I was going to think of like some sort of in Soviet Russia malware you, but I, I got nothing. I got Maybe the chat room can come up with something. You know what I do got, though? DigitalOcean. Go over to DigitalOcean.com, and I got a promo code for you, SnapOcean. That'll give you a $10 credit at DigitalOcean. Now, their pricing is very straightforward. You can pay hourly, and it's like $0.03 cents an hour for a great rig, or you can pay monthly. It's $5 a month for a rig with 512 megabytes of RAM, 20 gigabyte SSD, one CPU, and a terabyte of transfer. Anything you get at DigitalOcean will use SSD storage. They have a really nice interface to manage all of it, and an API that's so nice and simple that even if you're not really a developer, you're gonna be able to, you'll be able to take advantage of it. And absolutely, because they have so many good open source apps and libraries and whatnot already written around that for your phone, for your desktop, for your server, for Python. I mean, it's really just already done for you. It's so nice. And that's part of what makes DigitalOcean great. But then you combine it with their flexibility. You've got Ubuntu, FreeBSD, CentOS, CoreOS, Debian, Fedora. You've got data centers in New York, San Francisco, Singapore, Amsterdam, London, Toronto, and Germany. You can do multiple servers at once. You can do a single server at once. You can create a system and run it for a couple of hours and then destroy it. And their pricing is so simple and easy to understand if you want to pay Three cents an hour, you can you can do that. If you want to pay monthly, you can do that. I've actually been going with the twenty buck a month droplet for the last two ones I've deployed. They just work so great for me because I can stack a ton of stuff on here. They got forty gigabit e connections to these hypervisors, so these are really well connected machines. They got super fast CPUs and SSD storage, so I'm just stacking the workload on these things and getting a ton of value out of it. Check them out too; they've got great technology for all different kinds of workloads. Big data, web apps, your website, hosted services, developer tools. If you're considering augmenting your company's infrastructure with on-demand instances, DigitalOcean is also a great choice. Go play with it all and get started with a $10 credit by using the promo code SNAPOcean over at DigitalOcean.com. And a big thank you to DigitalOcean for sponsoring the TechSnap program. And thanks to all of our audience members who use that promo code SNAPOcean. Even if you've already got an account and you've never applied a promo before, you can still support our show by using SnapOcean. It's one word, lowercase, at DigitalOcean.com. So the Internet of Things, I'm actually, I'm actually about to say I'm almost not even hating having to say it anymore. I've said it so much that I just feel like it has lost that sting that I used to hear every time I heard of the Internet of Things. Because really, it is now becoming a, a huge part of what we cover on this show. Uh, not so much for their fancy gadgetiness, but for the security aspects of it. And we, sometimes on the show we said, maybe we need to do mass recalls on these devices. Maybe there needs to be some sort of legal action. So when I saw this article from Krebs, I was wondering if this sort of echoes some of the things we've discussed on the show in the past. Yeah, so this is interesting. Uh, it kind of relates to the stuff we were talking about with the attack on Dyn last week and so yeah. on. Yeah. So the Chinese manufacturer of a bunch of these devices, the uh, Xiaomi or whatever. Xiaomi, I think, um, or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Xiaomi. Um, or Xiaomi. Yeah. Anyway, uh, <laughs> they vowed to recall some of the IoT devices that were used in this attack. Oh, good. Good. Uh, but they're also threatening to sue all the places that are blaming the attacks on them. That's not good. So, yeah. Uh, a Chinese electronics firm pegged by experts as responsible for making many of the components leveraged in last week's massive attacks that disrupted Twitter and dozens of other popular websites has vowed to recall some of its vulnerable products, even as it's threatening legal action against this publication and others for allegedly tarnishing the company's brand. Oh, they're going after Krebs, huh? <clears throat> How effective a recall will be is hard to say, since most of these devices were actually sold rebranded by other companies and not sold by the manufacturer directly. Mm. Right? Nobody bought one of these cameras from Yongmang directly. They bought it from, you know, Panasonic or, or D-Link or whatever. 
and uh, lots of other places. We saw the list of brands that uh, on Krebs's previous post we covered like three or four weeks ago. Yep, yep. Uh, the major flaw with these devices is that uh, the it's not that so much that they just have a default password. It's that you can't change it. So in the web interface, you you go in and you change the default password or whatever, and it's fine. But they don't tell you that Telnet and SSH are enabled and that they have a root password that's default and you can't change it. Like the, there's no way to change the password it's, at all. It's just unbelievable. There's no reason. <clears throat> mm-hmm. uh, so Krebs interviewed researchers from Flashpoint who discovered that one of the default passwords sought by the machines infected with the Maria botnet, uh, username root password XC3511, is embedded in the, a broad array of white broad array of white labeled DVR and IP camera electronics boards made by the Chinese company Zhongmei. Uh, these components are sold downstream to vendors who then use them in their own products. Hmm. The scary part about IoT products that include uh, Yangmei's uh, various electronics components, uh, Flashpoint found, was that while users could change the default credentials in the web in the device's web-based administration panel, the password is hard-coded into the device uh, firmware, and the tools to need it aren't present, or to, the tools to change it aren't present uh, for the SSH Telnet side. So. You know, even so, users get the thing, go into the web interface, change the default password, think right. they've done the right thing, and there's a hard coded password for SSH you can't change. It's disgusting. Yep. Uh, Maria is a huge disaster for the Internet of Things, the manufacturer said uh, in a statement. Uh, XM, which is what they call themselves because nobody can pronounce their name. <laughs> oh, that's nice. Uh, uh, XM have to admit that our products also suffered from hackers break in and illegal use. Uh, at the same time, the Chinese electronics firm said that in September of 2015, it issued a firmware fix for all the vulnerable devices and that uh, the har- all hardware they've shipped after that date should not uh, be vulnerable by default. Uh, they say, since then, XM has set the device default Telnet off to avoid the hackers to connect. That's their English, not mine. Uh, in other words, this problem is absent at the moment on our devices after September 2015, as hackers cannot use the Telnet to access our devices. So apparently they actually did issue a firmware update and fix this on their devices in 2015, but obviously the 90-some-odd manufacturers that resell devices based on their components haven't done that. Jeez. And then all the users haven't. Even if the even if all those manufacturers did or the vendors did, then the users would have to update still, right? So in this case, it's been a year since there's been a fix. Uh, every newer device is shipped with a fix, but the older devices aren't updated. Hmm. So yes, maybe a recall is the best way to deal with this. <clears throat> but the problem is, you know, if if this company's doing the recall, how many of those ninety downstream vendors are still in business or have a way to contact their customers? Yeah, right. And and like, they can say yeah. The the line they used there where they said uh, the 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 models made after the certain t- certain date ship secure by default are not vulnerable by default. My thought, my first thought there is okay for this particular issue. But what what could what, there'll be well, something they, else? They turn Telnet off by default, so that's a big. But help. who knows what else could be there in there though? I mean, there could well, be yeah, there could be software vulnerabilities. They're not vulnerable to this vulnerability. Yeah, not it's there, but it's a never ending list of issues these things are going to have. <sighs> If it really needs to be, the only thing I can think of is a standardized yes. OS across everything. Like this, like they all ship it a certain really help. Uh, what they need is a proper auto update mechanism yeah, or something. Yeah. Like this. 
Well, something that they're not in charge of is whether what needs to be. I don't know. Uh, yeah. All right. It's hard to say. That is, uh, that's a hot mess. So Reuters has additional coverage, but there's... Um, yeah. Uh, in the meantime, it raises some questions about how consumers can try to protect themselves from this, right? Mm-hmm. So Krebs has another post where uh, U.S. senators are prodding federal agencies about the IoT mess and be like, how come you guys didn't predict this? It's like, well, well. You know, lots of us did, but not necessarily, you know, the FCC or FTC or Hell, so A lot of us did. I mean, we've been calling it for <clears> years. Yes. Uh, the co-founders of the newly launched Senate Cybersecurity Caucus oh. is pushing federal agencies uh, for possible solutions and responses to the security threat from insecure Internet of Things devices, such as network of uh, hacked security cameras and digital video uh, recorders that were, reported, uh, were reportedly used to help bring about last Friday's major Internet outage. Hmm. Well, that's slightly misclassifying what was actually happening, but whatever. In letters to the Federal Communication Commission, the Federal Trade Commission, the Department of Homeland Security, uh, uh, Virginia Senator Mark Warner, a Democrat, uh, called the proliferation of insecure IoT devices a threat to the resiliency of the Internet. He says, uh, manufacturers today are flooding the market with cheap insecure devices with few market incentives, uh, incentives to design the products with security in mind or to provide ongoing support. I think that actually sounds reasonable. It's like, yes, the manufacturers are flooding us with cheap devices that are insecure, and they, the market's not, there's no way, nothing forcing them to make the products to think about security at all or to provide support. Right. Right. And we're seeing this with phones too, right? We, we've yes. been harping on it for years uh-huh. about this, you know, oh, we released a phone and we're not going to update it. Uh-huh. But the same things, all these IoT devices. Like, how many devices have we seen where the manufacturers just literally dropped them? Like, what was it? Is it Nest that they're dropping their, some of their stuff? Yeah. It, yes, uh, they bought somebody and dropped it. What was it? Um, they bought that central hub thing, and I can't remember what it's, it's called now. But I can't remember what it's called, but they dropped support for it. And so now there's no security updates for that device, if there even were any in the first place. Uh, so then he wrote... Uh, Buyers seem unable to find informed decisions uh, or unable to make informed decisions because products based on their uh, competing security features, in part because there are no clear metrics. Well, that that's part of the problem. There's no way to measure how secure a device is. You know, you get, even if you audit the device, you don't necessarily find the one flaw. Like we saw, was it, I think it was the Western Digital NAS devices where if you just go to a certain, if you deep link to the admin panel, right. it doesn't prompt you to log in. Yes, that's and right. you can right, just yeah. do stuff unauthenticated. <laughs> that was a good one. Mm. Like, even if you're looking at the source code, you might not realize that that's actually what's happening. <clears throat> right. So even audits aren't necessarily going to solve this problem. I agree. You know, how many people look at the code in the Linux kernel and we had the bad cow or dirty cow for nine years? Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, same with OpenSSL. Yeah, and uh, Shellshock or uh, but Harp no, yep. uh, which Shellshock was the Bash one, right? Yeah, because Shell, yep. and then Heartbleed was the open. Yeah, so yep. all of those were around for a long time. Yeah, uh, and it's just because it's human error, right? So we we we're not going to stop those things from happening. We can try to do better, but we need to have systems in place to be able to update the components and not. And solve the problem after the fact. Don't you? Yeah. I mean, come on. We can kind of say no. We have to be able to support being reactive 
Yes. We, while we can try to be more and more proactive, we're never going to have 100% coverage. So we always have to design to be able to deal with this after the fact. Perfectly said. And I would say if you if you look at open source's track record, I think open source is better at reacting and fixing and getting the code out there. Not necessarily getting to the end users, yes, but, but getting the code created. Yes, and the problem is to the, to the end user is where part of the problem is because it's either too hard or has a history of being breaky or mm-hmm. just isn't even an option. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's all true. That's yeah. So he says uh, because the producers of these insecure IoT devices currently are insulated from any standards requirements, market feedback, or liability concerns, <clears throat> I'm deeply concerned that we are uh, witnessing a tragedy of the commons threat to the continued functioning of the internet, as the security so vital to all internet users remains the responsibility of no one. Further, buyers have little recourse when, despite their best efforts, security failures occur. Right? You bought one of these security cameras and it turns out to be insecure what do you do about it it's not like you can just return it yeah and, back, right? and the other thing is a pain in the butt is some of them have their own custom proprietary mounts right so like you can't just like go tear it down and put another one up because you got to go remount it you got to run wires different power cord all that stuff it's a it's a big pain in the butt to replace these things for some people uh, and then that raises questions about what ISPs should be doing. Uh, in particular, you know, we have FCC rules about them interfering with traffic, but at the same time, maybe that's what we have to do, right? Uh, so in the FCC's open internet order, the commission suggests that ISPs could take such steps only when addressing traffic that constitutes a denial of service attack on a specific network infrastructure element. Uh, so when he wrote to the FCC, is is it your agency's opinion that the Maria attack has targeted specific network infrastructure elements, like, say, DNS servers? Uh, and does that warrant a response from the ISPs? So again, this guy, <laughs> a senator that actually seems to be asking reasonable questions. I'm shocked. He's, shocked. Either, he's either actually paying attention or is hiring the right people on his staff. Yes. Somebody is feeding him useful information, it seems. He says, uh, I've been asked by several reporters over the past few days whether I think, so this is Krebs now, Uh, Krebs has been asked by several reporters over the last few days whether I think government has a role uh, to play in fixing the IoT mess. Personally, I do not believe there has ever been a technology challenge that has been best served by additional government regulation. However, I do believe that a credible threat to government regulation, or a credible threat of government regulation, is often what's needed to spur the (laughs) high-tech industry into meaningful action and self-regulation. I like that line. That's so true. <laughs> and that uh, process usually starts with inquiries just like this. Um, so there's hoping there that more lawmakers a real risk of it. Can, can start threatening things so that people will shape up. Jeez, that is such a silver lining to government getting involved. I love it. And you can, the threat has to be somewhat real. But, well, the EU is definitely sounding like they're wanting to do something like the Energy Star ratings, although... The problem is that what they're proposing wouldn't actually work. So, I gotta say though, there's a couple of things that I'm, I kind of feel like is uh, overblown. Um, there, so there was a few things in here that say like this is a fundamental un- attack on the structure of the internet and kinda. But then once the DDoS is over, everything oh, bounces yeah, right if, back. If, if the DDoS is on DNS and it was to be persistent. Then yes, that would be- if it were to be persistent. But in reality, like after a massive slamming like this, once it turns off, the system... It, nothing's s- actually physically broken. Yeah, it's fine. Yeah. So that's the only thing is like, we do got to keep that in mind when we're talking about DDoS. Right. We're, super- we're not actually destroying infrastructure. We're just breaking it temporarily. <laughs> yeah, taking it offline. It's, it's good as broken, except for as soon as it stops, it comes right back. So Right. So I guess... 
It's kind of like, yeah, it's like if you think of DDoS as, as a huge line at the Starbucks of people just asking a stupid question and not buying anything and then leaving. <laughs> That's good. It, it doesn't actually destroy the Starbucks. It just prevents you from getting your coffee for a really well, long time. Well, and if, if I'm Twitter and no one's viewing ads, or I'm Amazon and no one's buying anything yes. because they uh, can't, that's that's as good as bad, or as good as broken. They, they, somebody estimated it was $110 million in sales that was lost over the, the two bouts of DDoS that Friday. Oh. So that's serious. Now, if you know what Amazon does in a day, then that probably doesn't add up to very much, but still. Yeah, I've heard something like they do a million an hour or a million a minute or something like that. Something nuts. Just absolutely insane. Yep. Wow. Well, so uh, so there could be a threat of regulation on the horizon. I'll be interested to see if that story develops yeah. further There's over next year. There's definitely one in the EU, and it sounds like there might be one in the US, and that might get people to shape up. <clears throat> but then it, it, this quote came across Twitter the other day, and it made me giggle uncontrollably. Uh, in a relatively short time, we've taken a system built to be resistant to destruction by nuclear weapons... Uh, and made it vulnerable to toasters. I saw that too. The original and I, design of the internet yep. was to keep the U.S. military command and control system up, even if a couple of cities got nuked. And currently, it can be taken down by toasters. And we're not talking about Cylons. <laughs> that would be better. That would in some ways be better. Yeah, I know. It is really something. It is, it, that is a great point that we've, that is, well, it can overwhelm it. You know, you can overwhelm the system. The system itself doesn't get destroyed, but it can be overwhelmed. Yeah. Uh, well, because, you know, we, we expected physical, you know, the internet was immune to physical attack. It wasn't designed to be immune to, you know, uh, overwhelmed tra traffic. I just feel like this is a solvable problem on multiple aspects. So on the network, from networking level, there's things ISPs could do, and also vendors that can do. I mean, and there's even perhaps things government can do. So I feel like this is actually a solvable problem that we will look back yeah, at one like, day. It was a interesting discussion came up at EuroBSDCon when we were first hearing about this. Uh, the, the attack on Krebs happened that weekend of the oh, conference. Oh yeah, that's right. And a bunch of people who actually build appliances based on Linux or BSD at the conference were discussing, you know. Well, I see how you know we ship with the default password. So uh, should we come up with some way of like basing it on the MAC address or something, so that each device is unique? On on first boot, it generates a root password, so that every device isn't going to have the same password, or and so on and so on. Hmm. I think maybe just the discussion of this and people starting to think about it will help. But I agree. I agree. All right. Thanks for the coverage, you know, Mr. Duke. The, the bigger problem is that <clears throat> until consumers have a way to force manufacturers by like being able to tell this device is secure and this one isn't but you know i don't know if we just need like a base level spec where we just have a checklist of stupid things that this device promises it doesn't do and if you meet all those then we can you know go yeah, forward because you know nothing nothing can really keep up with the pace of technological development like you can't have a, a label right. on a or box we have even just that a baseline a baseline that says no hard-coded passwords uh ability to change all passwords make sure there's no built-in users that you can't disable uh make sure you know by default it doesn't listen on the internet only on the lan yeah you know just like a 10 point checklist so or like the underwriters lab the does worst for thing electrical equipment or whatnot just mm -hmm. hmm yeah maybe something like that will develop one day and then you know we just have stores not stock the really bad stuff but you know uh, consumers have this insatiable demand for super, super cheap Chinese stuff, and they don't <laughs> pay for better software. <laughs> That's right? true. 
Yeah, they, uh, everybody likes a deal, Alan. <laughs> so, hey, this says the guy who bought those really cool cheap Wi-Fi things while he was in Japan. Hey, so. those are J- Japanese. <laughs> <Not Chinese. laughs> they had good firmware. And yeah. Good yeah. <laughs> okay, fair enough. All right, well, let's take a moment. a little too small for me to run BSD on. <laughs> let's take a moment and uh, let's thank Ting. This is a, if you've got an Internet of Things device, why not throw a Ting SIM card in there? And then you're not paying for anything but what you use. That's what's great about Ting. It's just pay for what you use wireless. It's six bucks for the line, and then your minutes, your messages, and your megabytes. It's easy to manage it, and they never stand in the way of the updates from the OEM. That's not their bag. They don't have like a a Ting app package and skin that they got to put on your phone, so they have to delay the update. They don't do any of that, which is so nice when you use a Nexus device on Ting. TechSnap.Ting.com is where you go to save 25 bucks. Average Ting line is 23 bucks. So if you're going to get a phone, they'll take 25 bucks off. And if you're not getting a phone, you're going to bring one, they'll give you a $25 service credit. Now, I was thinking about somebody who might want just uh, an alert phone, a text phone, a simple phone, or even a crash phone, something you put in the, in the uh, glove box of the car and just leave in there for emergencies. This looks... Like a nice phone. It's the A392, a simple, I think it's Alcitel is how you say the name. Simple, solid, easy to use flip phone. $63. What were you going to say? How have you never heard of Alcatel? They're like Alcatel? A huge, yeah. I, don't get, I don't get phones like that. I don't get well, no, Alcatel they're not phones. Like, they make like motors and routers. They, they're like a huge, giant. I'm not saying like, I've never seen the name. I just never say it out loud. Okay. You know, that's, I just, does Johnny Ive make, I'm kidding. Uh, so the Alcatel or Alcatel, Alcatel 839, I the thing I, the thing that caught my uh, eye about it wasn't the name. It was, first of all, 63 bucks with no contract, so you could just pay for what you use. But look at just like simple, simple basic feature phone functionality. It reminds me of the old Motorola Razor, which was kind of a cool flip phone back in the day. And that make, that's probably making me sound old, though. Also has uh, an SD card slot in it, a camera, and Bluetooth. So you could actually you could actually use it to play your music and your podcast too if you want. It does actually support that, uh, and the battery life is like you know forever, which is kind of a nice thing about it. So that's that's a that's a real basic phone that you could get for emergencies or just for alerts. They have the whole range from a SIM card all the way up to the latest smartphones and everything in between. Go check out the Motorola G4 Play. It's one hundred and forty nine dollars. No contract, unlocked. It's really nice. It's a great service. TechSnap.Ting.com. And a big thank you to Ting for sponsoring the TechSnap program. So Alan and I are Time Lords this week. We're getting ready. We do this from time to time uh, for a special conference. And it's one that we're both going to. So I thought I'd just mention if you want to come out and say hi to Alan and I, you've got a little bit of time to plan still. November really. 11th and 12th is Meet BSD. What's that? Yeah, next week. <laughs> Very little because we are pre-recording. Uh, and so, well, and then I'm going to be in the San Francisco area Monday and Tuesday following that. So tweet me at Chris LAS if you'd like to meet up. I'm not sure which day I'll be doing it. Or if you just have suggestions, if you're from the area and have suggestions of great places to go get fat and drink delicious things, tweet me at Chris LAS because I'll be bopping around in the area. I'm looking forward to Meet BSD. That's going to be... Uh, my first BSD conference. I've been wanting to go to California all year long, and I'm looking forward to seeing people. So, checks all the boxes for me. I'm, I'm stoked. And I'll, the only the only hard part right now is all the double recordings we have to do to get ready for it. But I think Noah will be coming out here, so he'll be doing some shows and things like that. So it should be good times. Cool. Yep, you can find out more at meetbsd.com. And even if you're not going to go to the Meet BSD conference, if you want to say hi, uh, let me know at Chris Elias and. Uh, Maybe we can meet up. But with the news all done, it means it's time for the TechSnap Feedback. 
send in your emails to techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com or for popping that contact link at the top of the Jupiter Broadcasting site and choosing TechSnap from the dropdown. Now, we've got a batch of emails, and we're going to start with some home server-related ones. And our first one comes in from Jeremy. He says, Dear Chris and Alan, I'm setting up a home free NAS, and I was wondering how much processing power I really need. After hearing you talk about how USB-based storage is kind of a bad idea, I scrapped my original laptop plus USB drives idea. I have an ancient computer with a Core 2 quad at 2.4 gigahertz and 4 gigs of RAM. Will this be enough for a reasonable performing free NAS? I don't stream media, so it doesn't have to be blazing fast. I would like it to have a mirrored ZFS array with two one terabyte hard drives to start, and encryption is very important to me. With a lack of support for ASINI, cause performance issues for me. Also, if I decide to upgrade my hardware in the future, will I be able to move the drives to a different chassis and the free NAS install will just pick up where I left off? Any insights would be appreciated. As always, love the show. Keep up the good work. Sincerely, Jeremy. Yes, so good questions. Uh, so, uh, quad-core 2.4 gigahertz is probably lots. Four gigs are always- Four gigabytes of RAM is probably really not enough. Yeah, I'd say great job on the <laughs> CPU, really. Yeah, so uh, Core 2 quads would be great, except for the motherboards on those are usually limited to eight gigs of RAM, and that's pretty much the minimum you really want for a, a free NAS. You could probably get away with four, but, you know. So he's got two one eight, terabyte drives. So we're, we're Yeah. So, yeah. Um, he could maybe get by until the next build, especially if he's... You could probably make my with four gigabytes, but I really, really would want eight. If you can do uh, it, and that's, do it. That's, the, pro, that's the, the downside of trying to go with something like a Core 2 Quad. Although, I do have a bunch of Core 2 Quads that have eight gigs of RAM in them, and uh, <laughs> there's a bunch laying in my basement right now, actually. Oh, man. Uh, retired servers. <clears throat> because for what Scale Engine does, eight gigs of RAM is not enough anymore, and those motherboards don't support anymore, uh, which has been the problem. Uh, but yeah, you could probably get away with that. Um, but if you can cram eight gigs of RAM in that Core 2 quad, that would probably be enough. Uh, and yeah, mirrored uh, two one terabyte drives, that's not all that much space, but you know, sounds good. But yes, when you say you want encryption, the lack of AES and I is going to be a big deal. Uh, it'll use up a lot of that CPU, although since you won't be using it for much else, it'll probably be okay. Um, but you know, without with AES and I, you can do many gigabytes per second of encryption without... Overloading your processor. How does compression Whereas, play in at all? Could that help um, or, or harm? The compression is done first, so it means you end up encrypting less data. But and uh, does the decryption happen in RAM? Yes, it always has to. So it's not uh, like writing the, the data the, out and then decrypting it. Okay, so that would probably right. so it might be he might get better performance if he can. Well, that's heavy CPU yeah, usage. You'd definitely be better off with. Uh, a low power, like even a lower end dual core i3 would use less power and give him better encryption performance yeah. and support more RAM, but uh, he can probably get by with that core 2 quad. What about uh, splitting the, could he, could, is there a way with this limited amount of storage? Because he's really only going to have a terabyte. Could he somehow split the encrypted storage out in a way where only that's the heavy, bad performing stuff and then the rest of his files that he doesn't need encrypted could live somewhere else? I mean... <laughs> Uh, not really right now. Yeah, it's two um, little, little disks. Well, it's just, there's... The way uh, encryption is done in FreeNAS is, is under ZFS, so it's just the whole pool. Uh, when the ZFS native encryption comes out in uh, next year, then you'll be able to have encryption keys that, for, say, only encrypt this one uh, data set and not the other ones, and, and get the ability to kind of, like, selectively choose which data sets are encrypted and which aren't. 
So yeah, uh, it should all be fine. Although if you can get eight gigs of RAM into that Core 2 Quad, I would do that. Uh, otherwise, uh, the main advantage to something newer, uh, starting in the, the Core i series, is ASNI and uh, support for more RAM. Uh, although even i7s before Skylake, the limit I think was 32 gigs. Uh, not that you need that much anyway, but a lot of motherboards only supported 16 and so on. Anyway, um, you can probably make it work. More RAM is better. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the last question about upgrading in the future. Yes, the entire point of ZFS is you can pull those drives out of that machine and stick them in a completely different machine and the pool will import just fine. And FreeNAS is perfectly happy. You know, if you install FreeNAS usually on a USB stick and if it dies, you throw it away and put in a new one and it just works. So yeah, upgrading will be super easy. You just uh, pull the pool into another machine and problem solved. Awesome. ZFS is so good at that. You can even do it across different hardware architectures. So most file systems are specific to the processor's endianness. Mm-hmm. So you couldn't just move drives from like a MIPS to a to a x86 and right. so on. Oh yeah. But ZFS was developed at Sun, where they had to support both x86 hardware and Spark 64. Spark. Ah, yeah. Which is opposite endianness, and so uh, ZFS actually will allow you to pull the disk out of one type of hardware and put it in a different type, and it will just work. That is cool. So he should have no problem. All right, Jeremy, there you go. Good luck. And maybe, maybe if you can, get your hand on 8 gigs of RAM. Schmitty writes in. He says, hi, Chris and Alan. I currently run my own file server at home that is running Ubuntu 14.04 with ZFS as the file system for data. I have movies, music, and other normal file data that some friends want to download and upload to. I was wondering, what are the possible ways I could share this data with them? Not all of them are very tech savvy, so I was hoping for a web interface like Dropbox that I could host that would still store the files in a flat file system on the back end like a ZFS drive, uh, and not in a database like OwnCloud or CFile do. I know something like SCP or SFTP would work, but it's complicated for some of my users that I have in mind, and I was hoping for something that would work well on Android and allow them to access the files on demand from the server. What are your thoughts on this, Schmitty? Most of the free NAS users I know that want something like that are using Plex. Yeah, uh, I suppose for music, pictures, and video, that would work pretty well. Yeah, and so it's designed mostly for getting them to your TV and so on, but you can <clears throat> selectively like share your Plex library with a friend who will be able to then stream from your free NAS. And so people, like you get four friends that all have free NASs and they network them together and you can get access to everybody's movies. Yeah, and on them. mobile they have the Plex app. So yeah, if that's the kind of stuff you're trying yeah. to share. That's Or um, MB is and, the open source version. Yeah, and uh, they have um, a Plex plugin uh, for FreeNAS that makes it really easy to set up. Yes. So I don't know, about, uh, but on Ubuntu, I'm sure there's a instructions and a package for oh, Plex. Yeah. Or, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, it's super easy. It's, uh, there's a PPA and all that. Um, although I think, Schmitty, you should also, if you're trying to, if you want to transfer other things, too, that aren't, aren't just media files, you should revisit your your conclusion on own cloud or uh, maybe consider next cloud because it's very easy just to attach standard fo- folder storage to that and you can just browse the file system via next cloud instance next cloud has directories that it can create that are the user directories the things that sync and stuff like that and then you can attach storage to a next cloud instance and i think that would probably get you what you want so i would i i would say plex is going to be your best bet. It's way easier for them, and it works now for music too and stuff like that. But if you need other stuff, revisit Nextcloud. Consider consider that as well. Um, and also Libre Vault if you need just straight up syncing. Something else you could look into. 
All right, so uh, Stowe Chazix, who's probably in the chat room, says, uh, what would a proper backup look like, guys? I have an older Dell PowerEdge server with two quad cores and 16 gigs of ECC RAM and six hot swap bays. He got it for 130 bucks on eBay, and he's proud of it. He says that I use it for lots of things like storing my media, hosting VMs, and also hosting my NextCloud instance. The RAID card I'm using has pass-through, but I'm also limited to two or three terabyte drives per bay, which is probably a good thing for the wallet. Eventually, if I decide to go with RAID Z2, I may someday have an eight terabyte of data that I need to back up if he goes that far. So my question is, what would a proper backup solution look like? Should I set up a low-power thingy with eight terabytes with everything sent to it, like a mirror? Uh, perhaps two 8-terabyte drives mirrored? Before you know it, I'll have another RAID, 2, RAID Z2 setup. Assuming I use ZFS on the backup device, what is the best way to send the data from ZFS to ZFS? Is there a nice built-in ZFS solution or rsync? By the way, I have Arch running on the server, and I suspect my backup end of it will be of BSD. Thanks, guys, for all the good work you do. JB shows are my favorite. Stochastic. Yep. Uh, so... ZFS does have built-in replication, which allows you to do this, and it's much faster than rsync, especially when you have, say, 8 terabytes of data. When you have 8 terabytes of data, rsync has to walk through every directory, look at every file, and compare it to the other side and see if it's the same. <clears throat> Where ZFS, it's you just tell it, oh, the last time we did a backup was Tuesday, so ZFS just says, okay, I'm looking for every block that's been modified since Tuesday, got them, send them. Max out the gigabit and goes really fast. So yeah, ZFS to ZFS with ZFS replication works really nice. There are a couple of different scripts to do it. If both ends are free NASAs, there's a web GUI to do it. But uh, when they're not, you're going to rely on a script like ZX for or something of that nature. My only problem is, is he's going to invest all this money in doubling up his storage, and it's all sitting in the same room. So what are we what are we protecting from exactly? Just yeah. Well, if it's just uh, a couple of hard drives failing or I accidentally yeah. delete something, then that works fine. Uh, <clears throat> for the case of the house burns down, no, you need to put something. I in. think I would rather invest, instead of buying doubles of everything, I might rather just invest that in a TarSnap subscription or a Backblaze Well, the problem is, or... how do you upload eight terabytes from your house? Well, you do it slowly over time. I mean, he's only, he's only at... Yeah, but... uh... <laughs> well, I don't know, I don't know yeah. how much story he has now, but... Yeah. I mean, if he's only uploading like... A... It takes a week to move uh, a bunch of terabytes over my connection. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, well, I, I, guess I, I was moving 100 terabytes. That's not a fair comparison. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I feel like I move about a terabyte a month out of my connection. Most, like, that. that's the limit Comcast puts on... on I don't have any limits, stuff. though, because we have the Right, business. but, like, a terabyte is a lot. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, so, but if you're talking about it taking nine months to trickle out this backup, and you're going to yeah, have to slow down work. more if you don't want if, it to slow down If he down was your starting connection. with one or two terabytes, he might be able to do it for a bit. Right. And the other thing is, like, obviously, if, if you're doing the whole thing, you know, I put a free NAS at my parents' house or whatever, then you can obviously rep get them replicated over the LAN and then... Yeah. updates, yeah, but it yeah. depends how much stuff you're loading on it. That'd so be on. ideal. Now, see, now I'm a happier camper. If you tell me he's taking this other free NAS rig out of his house, now I'm happier. And would he maybe, you know, maybe get the initial data sync on the LAN? Okay, that sounds great. That sounds like a great idea. But yeah, just think about that still. All right, so Andrew writes in with a curveball question. Alan, prepare yourselves. He says, I have a very large collection of movies and TV shows that are all in various formats and codecs. 
I ran the following FFmpeg command to get all of my media into MP4 containers without losing any quality. And he gives us the command to use there. I'd like to take this step further and convert, I guess that would mean transcode, the audio and video inside each MP4 to H.264 and AAC format without losing any quality. The goal here is to make it as easy as possible on my Plex server. It won't have to transcode for each stream. I sometimes get four or five people streaming from the Plex server at once, and I can't keep up with that many transcoded streams. So how can I bulk convert all of my media from the various formats into H.264 AAC without losing quality? Well, without losing any quality wouldn't be possible, but we're keeping it both the same. Um, you see how you've set the, uh, the codec there to copy. There's a, <clears throat> a flag in FFmpeg called same Q, which means same quality. Um, and basically, it will do variable bitrate and basically try to, it'll compress as much as, as it can, but it will try to keep the same quality. Uh, you'd have to basically experiment a little bit with some of the settings and visually inspect the files and see if they look about the same quality or not. It's very you, hard you to know, gauge You might quality, actually be able to do the it. The same Q flag in FFmpeg is probably what you're looking for. That might actually that might actually be enough where you might not visually be able to see it, but if you are tra- which you are transcoding, if you are transcoding from one codec to another codec and they're both lossy codecs, there's there's literally no way to do that without losing quality. It's, it's, but, it's impossible. You know, the, the original the the original file you have has already lost a lot of its quality. Yeah, you'd have to but go yeah, back you, to the you Blu-ray. You probably get. Um, I don't know that you're going to save very much. Like, I guess it depends what your source files are and why they're in all different codecs. But most of my files are only in you know the codec that was the thing at that time. So yeah, like which is predominantly going to be uh, these days is H.264, and they might just be in MKV wrappers. Right, and but he's the, already the main that. advantage to MKV over MP4 in that particular case is that it can support multiple subtitle tracks where MP4 can't. Yeah. Um, and also even just multiple audio tracks, which isn't something that you're very popular in probably the content you have, but I know that uh, people that are into like anime or whatever, where there'll be like four audio tracks and eight subtitle tracks or something. I do, um, I do know, I, I know somebody who keeps a, a, a transcoded copy of their library just for streaming purposes to v- essentially solve this problem. I also, on my Plex clients, I tell it to, to not use acceleration or whatever that setting is whenever, po- what, or to use acceleration. I can't remember. There's a setting where you go in there and say, try not to convert it. Try to play it as it is, and you can play with that as well. Um, <clears throat> but I would actually... Yeah, so uh, another thing is, well, the FFmpeg command you're running there is obviously doing it on the CPU. Uh, this might actually be your best bet, because if you do offloading to something like QuickSync or MVENC, mm-hmm. they don't give you as much control over quality, because mm-hmm. they're about speed, mm-hmm. and so they might actually lose some for you. Now, they're a great solution when you want to do it on the fly with your Plex, you know, uh, where you're not keeping the end, the result, you're just playing it. Um, <clears throat> but that's sort of the big irony here, right? Is what Plex is doing is this for him on demand. It's taking yeah. it and the, and the, it's really doing the best thing for you because it's leaving your original high quality source or best quality that you have, right. and no, only converting it on demand when you need it. You might not have enough CPU I guess. power to support yeah. doing this for five people at once. Yeah. So doing it in the What's time when CPU, nobody's watching though? anything. Yeah. I've tested I've tested it with up to six streams on an i7 and it's kept up and I'm talking right, this is seriously high three then. and yeah, it also yeah. depends on the bit rate of the input files and so on yeah, yeah. so yeah uh, oh, they were look high at the rate, same but, yeah. Q setting and uh, make sure you set there's a uh, settings for H.264 or X.264 to tell it 
to like do the slowest option and yeah. it'll get the best compression with the best quality. It'll just take longer. Yeah, the same uh, as your flag. If you're just going to leave it running for months at a time or whatever to convert all your files, then that might be your best bet. Also, there is a nice tool that I have used. Um, trying to refine what it is. MKV Tool Nix. I think it's what it is. MKV. Does that sound right, Alan? Does that ring a bell to you at all? No idea. So this. The only thing I've ever used is Handbrake and FFM. Okay, so this is a. It's an application that allows you to open up an MKV and and pull out certain tracks or delete like subtitles or um, move it from an MP. Huh? Yes, is, yes, is I know. Just a wrapper on FFmpeg. Yep, exactly. And so if if you're if you're listening and you're not quite FFmpeg savvy, but you have like MKV files and you want to pull out the French track and make the English track the primary audio, yeah, something so like that. Actually, that's another thing he might have a problem with here. If there are multiple audio tracks in yeah. any of your MKV it, it files, can pick the wrong one. FFmpeg uh, might just stop or might just default to the wrong one. Yes. Uh, so for some of those, you might have to pick because you don't know that English is always track zero. Yes. It could get uh, slightly complicated. That's true. So MKV Extractor is also another one, too. Uh, lots of different tools to do this, but uh, yeah, you're going to have a really hard time. You will you will absolutely lose quality. <clears throat> that is, you know, how much? You may not be able to actually notice it. Yep. That's the thing, is it's is, it's harder to see than you'd think. So good luck, Andrew. Good luck. And let us know yeah, how it goes. Uh, depending on how varied your stuff is, I don't know that it's worth it, but uh, hopefully that helps. Alan is a man that knows a few things about transcoding video, and he runs it on IX Hardware. IXSystems.com slash TechSnap is where you go to support the show and learn more about IX. Uh, Alan, you've been tinkering with GPU decoding, CPU decoding. Uh, have Have you ever interfaced with IX on building rigs for that particular purpose? Well, yes. Uh, we just actually bought four more uh, this week. Oh, really? Um, <clears throat> yeah, so we got... Uh, so we, we bought some that did QuickSync, but we turned out QuickSync wasn't really working how we wanted. So we bought uh, NVIDIA GPUs and stuffed them into those existing QuickSync boxes, uh, which are only one use. So it was quite a tight fit to fit a video card in there. Uh, the biggest problem was that where the SATA ports are, the connector would poke up right into the fan of the CPU. <laughs> so uh, we managed to find special SATA cables that where the, the cable comes out like the side rather than the top of the connector. Uh, so they're 90 degree, but also the cable is thinner and it's two separate wires that are more flexible. Cool. Anyway, to, to work around so we're not poking into the fan. Yeah. But when we wanted to build new boxes, we're like, well, now that we don't, we, we're not going to use QuickSync. We don't, we're not restricted to using E3 processors. We can get a bigger E5. Uh, so we did that. But uh, with some asking around at IX, they managed to do some research for us and find a motherboard that's narrower and the PCI Express ports hang off the edge. Oh. So now the video card doesn't over, hang over top of the motherboard. It's actually the motherboard ends and then the video card starts. Uh, so this uh, solves any possible problem of, you know, uh, even the front panel connectors kind of being in the way of, of the video card. So they're doing like a custom build for you? Uh, well, it's it's an, a standard motherboard. It's just they, rather than using the motherboard they normally would have used, they used a special yeah, motherboard that's really that... Cool. Is it fits for it, and it actually allows us. Technically, we could fit two cards in if we wanted. Ooh, uh, but in a one U, which is pretty crazy. It's like normally you can't because the motherboard takes up the space at the bottom, and then you have just enough room for one card. Uh, but this one actually, because the motherboard is narrower, there's actually room for two cards, uh, full height cards, and then actually overhanging the motherboard on the other side, you can get one more half height card. <laughs> 
<laughs> that's a nuts thing. So yeah, they uh, they managed to find the the right uh, chassis and a motherboard that would pair together and, and make something that's that would work cool. for us. So that's we got so cool. Four of those. The, the scale engine grows powered by IX systems, and those IX servers are powered by those awesome Intel processors. IXsystems.com slash tech stack. 10 core E5. And I got to say, uh, I saw this tweet go by, and I immediately wanted to run over to Amazon and get a free NAS, because uh, I got to tell you, Rekai and I have been talking about our strategy for redoing the storage here, and so part of me is just like, a mini XL and it would be so perfect, and... IX tweets out this picture. They said, fresh shipment of the IX systems free NAS minis and minis XLs are on their way to the value distribution partners. And my thought was... So that's the other thing is now you can get free NASs at like regular... Like Amazon. My thought is these are probably probably new boxes in an Amazon warehouse with free NASs in them right now. Well, they've... they've, uh, IX has sold them by a... Amazon for a while now. Yeah. This is going to Synex, which is a regular channel oh, cool. thing. So you'll actually be able to buy these at like your local computer store no if they way. stock Synex. Oh, that's huge for them. <clears throat> that's great for IX and good for end users getting these really good high quality storage systems. That's mm-hmm. really cool. Well, thank you to IX for sponsoring the TechSnap program. Go there, learn more, try out their white paper, see if that maybe helps you grease the wheels up the chain. And big thanks to IX, and we'll see you at meetbsd, ixsystems.com, slash techsnap. And with the feedback all done, that means it's time for the TechSnap Roundup! Welcome to the TechSnap Roundup. Yeah, that's what that crazy music means. Now, the Roundup are stories that didn't fit at the top of the show, but we still have some links we want you to go read after the show if you feel like it. And we thought we'd go over some of these, and some of them came from our subreddit at techsnap.reddit.com. This seems like it's good news. An undersea cable that connects South Africa with the United States is going live. And they got the deets here. I don't really have much more to add to that. Do they say where the landing station is on the uh, uh, American side? Um, I don't know. I didn't read that part. So they say yeah, plans to launch so the sister cable to the uh, South yeah. Atlantic cable system. But it doesn't say, does it? It doesn't say there. However, it does say this should be live in mid-2018. I did see that part. Mm. It's got to be in here. It's got to be in here. But <clears throat> Well, we'll it, sometimes there is secret, honestly. Oh, that makes sense. Oh. Jeez, it's going to be 100 gigabits, though. That's good. It's, oh, and designing up to 60 terabits for uh, for this new one. 60 terabits. Yeah, because well, like, like we saw before, it's six... Uh, sets of fiber, each one can do 100 gigabits, and then you can divide that into 50 or 60 channels. Well, I want more. I want that here at the studio. So I, I really, I really think this next name is the name of this ransomware is ah, precious. The Modec cable will stretch uh, to Miami. There you go. There you, damn. So tell me about Lockie, because that sounds like a precious name for ransomware. It's Lockie. You're 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 uh, you're you're clever, evasive ransomware. <laughs> well, uh, so Lockheed malware has been around for a while, but uh, researchers have learned it has a new evasion tactic to make it harder to detect. Lockheed and stop. That's that's nice. According to Microsoft Malware Protection Center team, Lockheed ransomware authors have shifted the type of malicious attachments used in their spam campaigns to evade detection. They've observed Lockheed authors moving away from the use of WS WSF files. <clears throat> And now they're doing link files and things like that. Oh, yeah, dot .links. Sure. What could go wrong? I yeah. thought this was awesome for people that feel nostalgia about the uh, Sega Saturn. The 20-year-old Sega Saturn's DRM has been cracked. Finally, I guess, in July, uh, Dr. James Laird Waugh managed to crack the DRM and uncover its inner workings. He went through the painstaking process of the excru- and excruciating detail, they say, at the uh, RuxCon conference that we mentioned last week. Hey, look yeah, at so RuxCon. I think- 
I think we mentioned uh, when he did this back in July. Yeah, uh, I think was like running something off a USB stick on it finally. Yeah, I think. But yeah, he's got <clears throat> even more detail at mm-hmm. this conference now. Yeah, in fact, they've got great pictures of the process and uh, how the whole thing works and what he's been able to do with awesome. it. Yeah, it actually looks pretty. It does look pretty rad. And I and how this will help owners of a, of the existing Sega Saturns that still have them, which is great too. So like I said, if you're nostalgic for the Sega Saturn, it's a good article for you. Well, yeah, I think uh, the main reason it was done is because eventually the CD drive dies. Right, the motor dies yeah. and you can't spin the CD. And, and so it's like, how do I play games on it? And it's like, yeah. well, I got the USB to work. Yeah, there you go. Load them up. <clears throat> okay, so often I see Google prompting me, especially if I've tried to log in wrong a couple of times, to add my phone number to my Google account. Yes. Turns out this can actually make it more insecure. So uh, one researcher who's got a really secure password and all this stuff on his Google account had it stolen because what they managed to do was uh, call up Verizon and steal his phone number. And port it to their phone, and then yeah. authenticate with Google and reset his password. I've heard of that happening to some YouTubers as well. well I remember, uh, what was it a couple of years ago? We heard about this scam happening in Australia. Uh, they stole the guy's whole mortgage for his house. Remember that? Oh it was man! Like three, four years ago, we talked about it. But they basically called up the phone company, pretended to be him, switched his phone number over to their new phone, uh, although it was actually a cheap throwaway phone, uh, and then. They, you know, they had sent a bunch of texts to him first to make him think that the network, the phone network, is going to be down and not ex- anyway. And so then, when he, they went on to his online banking and uh, tried to transfer all this money, uh, the two-factor auth thing went to his phone, which is actually their phone now, and they stole the money. Hmm. Uh, and so basically, people are doing this. So it turns out the weak point with uh, all phone-based two-factor auth is that anybody can call up your phone company and. Move your phone number. Now, in this case, Verizon admits that they didn't even bother to ask for the PIN number that's supposed to be required to move the phone number. Right? So, like, the... Uh, security code the, or whatever. The security researcher had a PIN number set up so that people can do this to his phone, but Verizon didn't even bother to check it and just transferred his phone number that's anyway. so frustrating. That is so frustrating. <laughs> uh, at least nobody knows who my mobile phone carrier is, so I'm safe. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, this next story actually fits right in with mobile phones, and uh, I love it because I got this like, super, super excited text messages from Noah, and I, he's never going to watch this far into the show. I know. I'm calling you out, Noah. And he's like, oh, man, if AT&T merges with Time Warner, they're going to bring 5G, 100 megabit wireless to everyone's home. This is incredible. This has to happen. Well, according to the New York Times, that all is probably a bunch of crap. And this is, this is AT&T's big technical push to merge with Time Warner, the $85.4 billion deal that's about to get reviewed. Uh, but the thing is, 5G is unlikely to be deployed in any meaningful capacity for the next decade, the New York Times writes. The technology, which is supposed to offer at least 100 times faster connection, is at the center of a bitter fight between carriers and telecom, telecom makers about how everything should work, and nothing's well, not been resolved. That, the, the biggest problem is that Wireless shares a medium, the air, means only one person can talk on a channel at a time. There's not going to ever be enough channels to allow everybody to have 100 megabits wireless. It would also require all new equipment, which is a tremendous build out for a company like this. <laughs> yes, and we've seen like was it like Verizon and ATT be like refusing to build out anything new at all. So yeah, the now chance what, of them switching. Now what they say is you are going to see more and more localized 5G deployments. You're, they're they're doing them now at some colleges and events where they need something high speed wireless, but it's Totally right, different but thing. you know, even then, it's like unless they're going to increase the number of like uh, cell sites by a huge number, is never going to be that fast. It'll be that fast if you're the only person using it. 
but you're never going to be the only person using it. And then when you're channel sharing with 100,000 people, 100 megabits doesn't add up to very much. It's just funny how by people. before these big mergers happen and before they get the approval, like these stories come out about how with this merger, we'll have the access to deploy technology that'll be totally Baloney. revolutionary. We'll have no reason to do it without, if, yeah. only if they are being competed that will cause them to actually invest the money. This is the, this is the fundamental issue is once they have that huge, huge market share, there's no competitive reason to make them do it and they can just sit back Canada, and make money. We stopped letting the banks and the telcos merge. This is why I'm calling no point. out. He should, he should know better. He should know he better. Should. Uh, chat room, you'll have to give him a hard time though because I know he's never going to watch this far. Never. All right, so this next round of story is kind of funny. Kids today are so stupid they fall for security scams more often than graybeards do. Oh, no. Well, so they, they kind of got that title wrong because graybeard means like... Expert. Uh, yeah. Yeah, like, yeah, I know. Exactly. They meant old people. Yeah. Yeah. But yes, apparently uh, millennials are easier to bait into tech support scams than baby boomers. Okay, I could see it. It's like the problem is that kids nowadays don't even understand what's happening in the computer. They're just like, "Oh, it's magic." It's I don't. Like, but no. did most baby boomers? I don't know. I mean, I I don't know. Well, the baby boomers are just less trusting. I think. Yeah, that's they're probably and they've been through more crap. And they're a little more skeptical. And they don't like it when that kid with the accent can on them. All right, so that too. <laughs> Warner Brothers claims that uh, Agency Rain, its own. Is its own what now? What is this? Agency Rain, its own pirate movie Not site? Rain. That doesn't say Rain. This oh, Rain. A talent Jeez, yeah. agency, which why, yeah. uh, Warner Brothers would send screeners, which are like preview copies of movies that for award consideration. Um, I swear to God, I read that it said Rain. I don't know what my problem yeah, it is. Doesn't. So, so anyway, Warner Brothers sends out these screener DVDs, which are pre-release versions of movies yeah. for award consideration, because sometimes the movie's not going to come out until after the awards, but yep. they still want to win an award. And so the talent agency gets some of these because... They're part of the people that get to vote, and also I think actors and so on get to watch them. Uh, but it turns out that this one talent agency ran an internal website where they just ripped all these DVDs and made them available for download, including by people that weren't supposed to have access to them. Because, you know, if you work at one of these places, well, you would do that, right? <laughs> so, yeah, they're basically accusing a talent agency of running their own private pirate movie site uh, based on all the screeners they would legitimately get. Speaking of uh, baby boomers... That is, I don't even know who's making those decisions over there. I can't even, I just can't even. Uh, this sounds, this sounds like it could trick a millennial. This fake Microsoft installer leads to malware and support call scams. That looks legit to me. Uh, if installed, the malware triggers a phony blue screen of death and it warns users their PC ran into a problem. And to remedy the issue, it encourages users to call a support number, which then leads to further infections, according to Microsoft. That's a good sneaky one. A fake of blue screen of death that tells you to call them. Because you're much less suspicious when you call them than when they call you. Yeah, that is great. And you could almost see that being in an error message like that, especially if you haven't seen a lot of them. Yeah. If you didn't know that Microsoft doesn't provide support to anybody unless you pay them a lot of money, then uh, yeah. you would think that was legit. Yeah. There's, you know, okay, so last roundup link. There was a couple of big acquisitions in the small chip space this week, and I didn't want to dwell on both of them, so I thought I'd call out the bigger one. It looks like Qualcomm's going to buy NXP. Which is uh, which is a semiconductor con company for forty seven billion dollars. Interesting. I, I knew about Qualcomm. I just I'd never heard of NXP. That's or because the fact that they'd be worth forty seven billion dollars. Well, they're one of the biggest names in automobile semiconductors. Ah. So they're huge in making chips for cars. The other <clears> big uh, I think ARM purchase that happened this week too, and I'm blanking on the name, was also in the car space. 
I just think uh-huh. that's interesting from a trend perspective that the, the companies have made a lot of hay on the explosion of ARM processors are taking those winnings and now buying into the car computer space at a hardware level. And you look at Google's car efforts and you look at Apple's rumored car efforts and Tesla, there is some serious stuff actually starting to happen uh, at each level and big players are moving in. Yep. So yeah, it looks like... Uh, it's like they'll have a combined revenue of $30 billion a year and the $140 billion ah, by 2020. NXP used to be called Philips Semiconductor. Now it makes a lot more sense. Yeah, that does make a lot of sense. <laughs> yeah, NX, NXP shares rose 1.7% to $100 a share, $100.34. And, and Qualcomm gained 3.1% to 7032. Uh, uh, chat room points out uh, it's not really Microsoft support if they don't ask you to restart your computer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, don't... Oh, man, I feel so bad when people get scammed by that stuff. Let's all help. All this holiday season, as it gets closer, let's go home and remind people not to fall for those scams. Yeah. Um, well, Mr. Jude, that brings us to the end of this week's broadcast. We're all done. If you want to get a story in our roundup, go to techsnap.reddit.com. Don't forget to join us live on Thursdays. It's fun to have you here, and you get to get a whole lot more show. We convert all the times to your local time at jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar. Uh, he's at Alan Jude on the Twitter. I'm at Chris LAS. Is there anything else we should mention? Uh, no. See you next week. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's it. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next week. Bye.